Welcome to the Gospel City Church Podcast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you would hear, be challenged, and encouraged by this week's teaching. Head to gospelcitynow.com for more information. Yeah, so uh, buckle up, church. This morning's passage is an interesting passage. You know, when I picked to do the book of Hebrews, I knew that this passage was in our path, and I knew Hebrews 10 is also very similarly in our path. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is... You know, just a, a difficult message, uh, difficult passage to kind of deal with and interpret and interpret rightly. And, uh, you know, and even, you know, I, I read a lot of, I consulted a lot of commentaries, a lot of sermons this week in my study and preparation uh, over this. I mean, some really good guys. Like I, I read Spurgeon, you know, I'm, I'm reading uh, Thomas Schreiner. I read Al Mohler stuff. I, I read uh, Warren Wearsby. Got good guys. And I read some other things. Uh, the one in, the one consistent thing is that none of them agreed, so that was great, and uh, and, and so that just tells you what kind of a difficult passage it is that we're dealing with this morning. That there's so many varying kind of uh, opinions on it. So let's jump in. The first part won't be as hard, but we'll get to the uh, verse four in a moment. Uh, starting in chapter six of Hebrews, in verse one, it says this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. All right, let me let's pause there. Now, this is a little bit of a piggyback on last week's message when we talked about the importance of moving towards spiritual maturity. Like we don't want to eat. We don't want to be just drinking milk the entirety of our Christian wall. We want to be progressing to, to eat meat, to, to grow in our relationship with Christ, grow in our understanding of God's Word, and all those kinds of things. But what does this passage mean when it says to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and not lay again a foundation of repentance and faith? Does this mean that the gospel truths are only for beginning believers? And, and if that's the case then we have kind of set a foundation for this church that would be a bit contrary to that. Because if you remember, we kind of said we want the gospel to be for the city, gospel city, but also the gospel is for the church. And not just for new believers, but growing believers, spiritually mature believers. So if it's the case that we should get rid of the beginning doctrines of the gospel, then we, you know, we, we kind of laid the foundations of this church in a in a wayward spot. And maybe we need to change the name of the church, right? We named it Gospel City Church. Maybe we need to name it like Eschatological City Church or something, you know, something more spiritually mature and uh, those kinds of things. Is is that the case? Is that what the scripture is talking about here? No, I don't think so. He's talking about leaving the elementary doctrines. It's not an abandoning of those doctrines. Uh, It's not abandoning of those foundational fundamental principles, but instead... It's a springing from those beginning doctrines on into a greater fullness of the faith, a greater understanding of God's word. But those fundamentals are still fundamentals. You don't abandon them. You, you build upon them, right? It's like, um, it's like football, right? I know it's going to be hard to tell this now, but when I was younger, I played quarterback um, all throughout my uh, youth playing days in the high school and then you know, lived the glory days of intramural ball when I was in college and, and like, old man. And so I got, it was too sore to play afterwards, you know. And so I did that for, but when you start learning the position, 
you learn the fundamentals, right? Okay, you got to get the ball, uh, hold the ball high, two hands on the ball. And when you're throwing the ball, the fundamentals, I still remember this. This tells you how important fundamentals are, right? You throw your, your left elbow, right? And then you follow through. And I'll remember, never forget this. A coach taught me you follow through, and it's like you're wiping a booger on your left thigh, right? So you want to wipe the booger and then step through, right? These are the fundamentals of throwing the football, right? Now, th that's what you learn in practice. You go over that. You do the fundamentals over and over and over again. Now, in a game, in the middle of an action, in the middle of the action when the play's going on and there's a 300-pound man chasing you, wanting to suplex you, you don't think, okay, ball high, you know, throw booger, you know, step through. You're not thinking those things, right? You're thinking, I got to get the heck out of here or I'm going to die, right? But then you make a play, you get rid of the ball, you throw the ball, and what comes out of that is the fundamentals. You hadn't abandoned them. They're in you, and they're in you because you know them, you've rehearsed them, you've, you've done them over and over and over and over again. And I think that's the argument here of Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews 6. It's not a, a, an abandoning the, the fundamental principles of the faith, it's a building upon them. It, it's, a, the, the, it's, a, it's a, we had those settled, right? These aren't the things that are tripping, up, tripping us up anymore. Remember the context of the entirety of the letter, he's pushing them on to spiritual maturity because they were going and wanting to go back into the Judaic sacrificial system. They were wanting to make a sacrifice for sins again. And so they were really being tripped up, tripped up over fundamental principles. It says, leave behind the, settle those and build upon those to grow in Christ and grow in spiritual maturity. So you're not leaving behind these things. So it's okay that we've named our church Gospel City Church. And it's okay that we say it's for the city and for for the church. And I think that backs up, is backed up in our verses that we look at in Romans 1, 16 and 15, right? Last week, he, he called them to go deeper, go deeper into spiritual maturity, get to the, to the milk, so, I mean to the meat. So we don't forget the basics. Milk is fine uh, for a while. You just can't live on it. So you continue to progress in greater spiritual uh, maturity. And this is for everybody, right? Um, I was talking with a, uh, some, some guys a couple weeks ago, leading Bible study, and one guy said, well, if we do that, we're not going to be able to like, live our lives. We're, not gonna be able to, we're all going to have to be pastors. No, this isn't a call for pastors. Spiritual maturity is a call to all those in the faith to grow in Christ. Now, we may all end up in different places in our spiritual maturity, but we should all be progressing in, in greater sanctification towards Christ on a, on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment a moment basis. We should be continuously growing towards Christ, right? If we stay in that kind of spiritual immaturity zone, if we continue in, in, in staying spiritually immature and we, and we constantly need the reteaching of the fundamentals of the faith, going back to the football analogy, you're not going to play in the game, you're just sitting on the bench, right? If you, if you don't have the fundamentals down, then the coach isn't going to trust you to throw the ball in the game. And the same thing is going to be true. You're, how are you going to serve you can't get the fun. You, you, you're still wrestling with the fundamentals. You're not going. You're not going to. You're not going to serve God wholeheartedly. You're going to be wrestling with those things. So, so he's imploring them to settle these things and move towards greater spiritual maturity. And then uh, at the end of that verse, verse three. Uh, notice how the writer closes out the section when he says, "This we will do if God permits." 
And I, I just love the affirmation of God's sovereignty in our sanctification. And, uh, you know, we should work really hard to leave behind spiritual immaturity, grow towards spiritual maturity, grow beyond elementary doctrines and build upon those. But ultimately, um, these, are, these things are in the Lord's hands. And Him opening our eyes to greater understanding, is, it, it's up to Him. Now, we apply ourselves, we, we set ourselves before His Word, but we need Him to move and open, give us wisdom and eyes to see what we need to see in order to grow closer to Him. And I think it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The theological term for this is called synergism, which we believe our salvation is called uh, monergistic, which just is God alone saves us. But our sanctification is synergistic, meaning we work hand in hand with God. Now, I think when we get to the end of our lives, we'll look back and see how little we actually had to do with it. But we at least apply ourselves to setting ourselves before his word in prayer, through the, in the church, uh, at the Lord's table, through baptism, whatever the thing is, that we, we do those things and God grows us through those things. And we work together to, to, to see us grow more in the likeness of Christ. Now, as I said, we know that true spiritual understanding, this is a miracle. This is an act of God. Uh, for him to open up a mind that was, was born into sin and, uh, and, and still wrestles with the flesh, to be able to see spiritual things, that is a movement of God. And don't take that lightly. When you grow in, incrementally in your walk with Christ, praise God for it. Because he's the one who opened your eyes to those truths. He's the one who's still carrying you along and showing you the goodness of himself through his word and through his people, right? Okay, so let's get on to um, verse 4. It says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them, kind of connected, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay, this is uh, Hebrews 6, and a fun passage to kind of wrestle with. What, and the first thing we've got to do with this passage is who is it talking to? Who, what is being, who is being addressed here, and what is the writer of Hebrews saying uh, it, it can happen to them, right? So, I'm going to lay out really the four main views for us on what a lot of people think about this verse. Quickly, I'm going to lay out the four views for you and, uh, and then tell you where I land in what I believe is most accurate to the Bible, right? First view that a lot of people hold to this would probably be qualified as the Arminian view. It's where someone believes that you can, uh, this is talking to true Christians. They are actual Christians. They uh, born-again believers, and that these born-again believers have the possibility of falling away 
apostatizing or, 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 or turning away from Christ uh, with some finality to it to the point that they can never again return uh, in uh, repentance. Or otherwise, they would say this is how you can lose your salvation and uh, that this is evidence for, for that. Now, this would obviously be a challenge to the plethora of verses throughout the, throughout the Scriptures that, that tell us that uh, those who have been saved will persevere to the end. The, the doctrine of this is called the perseverance of the saints, that those who are saved will be saved uh, forever. You know, there's no, you, if you have salvation, it can't be lost. Uh, you can do nothing to lose it, right? And I want to read to you uh, a scripture to affirm this. John 10, 27, probably one of my favorites when dealing with the perseverance of the saints, but it just says, my sheep hear, this is Jesus speaking, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The beautiful picture of the perseverance of the saints here is that if you are saved, Jesus, the Father has given you to Jesus. You are in the hand of Jesus. But also kind of this almost the picture is that you are also in the hands of the Father and that no one can snatch you out of that hand. No one, that includes you, one. You're in there, you're in there. And you can't lose your salvation. You didn't earn it to begin with. You can't lose what you didn't earn. God saved you. And what God started, He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Right? He who started a good work in you will carry on to completion. He didn't mess up. He didn't accidentally save you and you slipped out of it. And so we, we hold to the perseverance of the saints. And, and also, this passage, the Hebrews passage, is difficult for someone who holds that because... Uh, for them to say that they would fall away to the degree that it's impossible for them to return in repentance. Uh, it, you know, oftentimes they make allowances in, in whatever way so that they can come back um, to, to repentance. But it's in, inconsistent nonetheless, all right? So that's view one. View two is uh, the hypothetical argument. That this is a hypothetical situation as a warning to true believers. This did not really actually happen, but, uh, but believers should read this and be warned that, that this is serious stuff. And because, hypothetically, these things would happen, if that could happen, but it can't really happen, therefore they should be warned and walk in holiness. And uh, obviously, there, there are a lot of smart people that hold to this, you know, and, and um, you know, the, again, the idea is that uh, a true a true Christian can never truly fall away, but this was written as a warning, so they'd read it like, oh no, that would happen. That could happen to me. Hypothetically. It, it would be like, uh, I, I read this one illustration this week, you know, we, you know, if the sun was any closer to the earth, I, I forget how many miles it would take for the sun to get, if it got closer to the earth that we would all burn up, right? It's not not very far in, in, in relation to space. Uh, that if it got a percentage closer, we would all burn up. If it got a percentage further away, we would all freeze to death, right? Uh, this is a hypothetical situation, right? And so it's, if this were to happen, um, then we would all die, right? We'd all be doomed, right? And so 
None of us are walking out of here today thinking, I wonder if tomorrow will be the day that the earth gets closer to the sun. You know, we're not thinking that. We, just, we, we don't think this is going to happen. And in the same way, that's, that's the argument here, the hypothetical argument, is that it's impossible for a believer to, to truly commit apostasy in this way, a true believer. And so, but, but we're going to lay this out there that if they were able to do that, they'd never be able to come back. Hypothetically. So that's argument two. Um, again, all these have problem verses. I think those have greater problem verses than the ones, the view I'll show you. Third view is, um, is that the phrase falling away is not salvific. It has nothing to do with salvation. That this falling away is a falling out of the spiritual blessings of God or, um, or, or eternal rewards, uh, those kinds of things. That the whole verse entirely has nothing to do with actual falling away from, from Christ. That it's written to believers and if they fall away, they're falling away from like the promised land or the, the, the spiritual inheritance, those kinds of things, right? And then lastly, the fourth view, in my view, the one I hold to, and I think most people probably argue this view, is uh, that these... The audience here is not true believers. That he's not talking to genuine believers. And there's some problem verses with that, but I, I think this is where I, I land. I'll, I'll kind of tell you where, uh, why I land where I, I land on this. But I, I think that when the passage is talking about these people can fall away, it's because they can fall away because they're not, they're not, they're falling away from something other than a genuine faith. They're falling away from. The blessings of, of God, they're falling away from church, they're falling away from uh, something other than being in the hand of Christ and in the hand of the Father. And so uh, I think it's an audience of, of non-believers. And I think the reason I think that, two main reasons, I think the parable of verses 7 and 8 kind of alludes to this, that they are not like uh, <clears throat> the land that received much rain and, and, and bore no good fruit and only thorns and thistles, right? So... Uh, again, he, he's, he's given this illustration on, um, it, it goes kind of back to the parable of the sower in some degree that a, a good tree bears good fruit. And I'm going to read that verse in just a moment. But, uh, you know, the, the work, when God does a work in you, he's going to bear out good fruit. He's going to bear out good fruit. If he doesn't bear out good fruit, that means you're not a good tree, right? And, and so you, the tree has to be changed, and only God can change, change a tree. The other reason I think, you know, big, um, that this is to non-believers is because verse 9 seems to shift and talk to a different group of people when he says, but you, and he calls them, this, he says, this is not your case, beloved. He calls them beloved. So it's almost a dichotomy of, of two, two different type of people that he's speaking to here, and he kind of shifts gear and almost says, but you Christians, this isn't, this isn't your case. This isn't the case for you. And then he'll go on to talk about the surety of salvation in Christ, our sure and steady anchor. Right. And so uh, I, I, that's why I think that the previous verses that we read are talking to uh, to, to non-believers. Now, what I want to do is I want to walk through um, the verse and, and talk through what some of these spiritual experiences might be. And uh, and so that I hope that they serve us as kind of a warning. If there's anyone in here that you are close to the things of God, but you aren't known by God, then this would be important for you to to. Pray that God would come in and truly wake you up to the gospel. Uh, notice the verse says that they had once been enlightened. If you remember, I taught a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you missed it, just bear with me. But I taught on the, there were three aspects of faith. And the first one 
is cognitive assent, right? That you understand the biblical truth. You understand biblical narrative. You, you see how all the pieces, you know, fit together uh, for, uh, you know, God being God, Jesus being the Son of God, being sent, dying on a cross, living a perfect life, dying on a cross in substitution for our sins, you know, rising from the dead, ascending to the Father. Like, you, you understand all that cognitively, and you would even say, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I believe all those things happen, right? That, that, that part of faith, you got cognitive assent. But what we mentioned is faith is fuller than that, right? Like cognitive assent isn't enough to save you, right? I would point to the scriptures where it says that even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons have some kind of belief that's not salvific. They have some kind of belief that's not going to earn them eternal reward they understand what is true but they haven't remember I, I gave the illustration of the chair they haven't sat in the chair they they haven't put their all their hope into Christ right they, they understand what is true and so I think when it talks about those that have once been enlightened that this is what it's talking about someone who cognitively assents to the truths of the faith and then it says that they've tasted the heavenly gift this is probably one of two things. One, it could be just the sweetness of the fellowship of the church, which uh, we've tasted that, right? Haven't we? I mean, what, what, I mean, we know that firsthand. What a beautiful uh, body of believers we have, just a sweetness. We come together. There's a lot of life, a lot of joy. We love one another. We're caring for one another. We're, we're asking about each other's lives. We're walking with each other through hard Hard times. That's just a sweetness, right? The tasting of the heavenly gift of the of, of the established church that God uh, set up. What a beautiful thing! So these people maybe tasted that heavenly gift, or it could, uh, and, and maybe it could be some level of both of this that they participated in the Lord's Supper. They tasted the bread and the wine uh, along with the body of Christ, uh, and yet we're not believers. So they they tasted the heavenly gift. Then it says they shared in the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you, in the early church, uh, before we had the entirety of the Scriptures canonized, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, uh, that they they were they were going around and and uh, uh, the test the, the testimony that the salvation was happening was that the Holy Spirit was coming upon people and they would be speaking in uh, other tongues and, and different things like this. And so they were, in the early practice, the early church was to go on and lay hands on individuals uh, for the, 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 the uh, receiving of the Holy Spirit. And again, all, all those were kind of this apostolic ministry and a lot of things going on in the early church. And so, so this is probably what these believers participated in. They were probably in some kind of uh, um, situation, circumstance, where hands were laid uh, on them for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's... Uh, likely talking about him here on them being a part of that Christian community. And then it says, they tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, it's hard for us to kind of picture all this, but uh, it's, it's good contextually for us to understand access to the word of God for these, this audience uh, was very minimal, would have been very minimal. And, um, and so, uh, especially the new letters, circulating and getting around this is before they kind of all got bound together and canonized or, or the became the, the full uh measure of god's word right that they, 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 they were 
continue to be passed around. So they're going to be sent this letter, but they may not have heard the, the letter to the Corinthians yet. They may not have heard John's uh, revelation yet, right? So, so, you know, they're kind of working through all these things. So to hear, to read the Word of God, to hear the Word of God read, to hear preaching and teaching of the Word of God was a great blessing, an incredible blessing, a, a rare blessing. It wasn't something like we get to participate in uh, on, a, on a daily, hourly, weekly basis if we, if we want. You know, they, they were waiting for someone to come and explain the scriptures to them. They were waiting for someone to come and take their one letter that they've been, and to read it over the, the congregation. Like it wasn't as accessible as we have uh, the word of God now. And, and then he talks about the word of God also being the power of the age to come. When the canon was finished, um, when it was, was completed, right? When the, the whole of scripture was completed, God used it mightily in the spread of the gospel uh, throughout the world. Throughout the world. So he's used his word in those, in those things. So this is someone, again, who has been a part of those. They've sat under teaching. They've heard the word of God read over them and preached, right? And so that's, and then it says that they have still fallen away. They've fallen away. Or again, I mentioned this word earlier, uh, the word apostasy. It's just a, a sustained rejection of Christ. This is what they have done. They have, with some finality to it, they've rejected Christ. And it says that it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. <clears throat> I think this kind of meshes a little bit with the hypothetical uh, argument, but in this way. In that, if someone, like for instance, I, I got this illustration from another pastor. He, he did this. I thought it was really good. If I were to walk away from Christ tomorrow, if I were to say, this is bunk, I'm out of here, this is not true, um, I, I'm, I'm walking away from this. There are some certain things that you can assume. One thing you can assume is that I was not a genuine believer. That I, I, I did not have a genuine salvific faith. Because I would echo First John that says that those that went out from us were not really of us. And had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us to make it plain that they were never of us. Meaning, if someone has left and walked away from the faith, it's because they probably never had a genuine faith to begin with. Now, there's some backsliding issues and some things that we probably have to work through with these situations. But by and large, if I walk away from the faith tomorrow, you can say that David never was a Christian. You can assume that, right? And um, because, and, and then what you could probably assume is someone who has known the word of God and the power of the age to come as I have, someone who has tasted of the heavenly gift as we have, someone who has been involved in the church, we've tasted of the Lord's Supper, we, we've come together, all, all these kinds of things. We've been enlightened. I know, I know the, how the biblical narrative all comes together. And if I, I were to say all that is, is not true, and I'm walking away from the faith, it's likely, barring God crushing me in an incredible way, impossible for me to come back to this. Impossible for me to come to repentance. As Piper uh, says, he says, and it says, and they crucify again the Son of God. It, it would be the same thing as saying, Jesus deserved everything he got. And I believe that. 
and I'm walking away from this. Crucifying again the Son of God. And so that's kind of the picture here in my, in my estimation, and I think what is most biblically accurate, that this is to non-believers who have tasted and still walked away. You know, I mentioned the parable of the sower. I want to read to you, this is Matthew 7, where Jesus is teaching on good trees bearing good fruit. Matthew 7 says this, starting verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Then he goes on to teach this. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I I think this holistic look of the scriptures clues us in to the reality, to, to the warning. A warning to those who are not saved, but you're very close to the things of God. And this happens in our, in the church world all the time because I'm telling you, the church is a beautiful place to be. And, and what you find out here is that you're attracted here for community, but you never find Christ. Or you come here for the benefits that you get from for whatever reason, you want to serve in some way to get you accolades, or you want to do something that really is more self-motivated than, than, than sacrificial, and you, again, want something other that the church offers, which is good things, but something other than Christ. And this is a dangerous, uh, and a warning. And, and, and I could go, there are ample biblical references to the church uh, growing and, 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 and uh, continuing on its kind of journey and there being non-believers in their midst. And so you may be saying, David, why are you preaching this? We're all believers here. Well, we might not be. Which leads me to, what is the takeaway for us? What, what is that? Why are you preaching this? What's the point? Well, I think it is a very healthy, biblical thing to lay our hearts and lives on the examination table before the Lord to see if we have genuine relationship with Him. I think it's a healthy thing. I think it's a good thing. Do we have a saving faith? Now, this isn't so that we'll live in constant doubt and fear. But instead, I think it would give us great assurance to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. Examine it. See it. See fruit of repentance in our life. Examine it. See it. See the evidence. First John talks about some evidences that we can know that we are in the faith. That we see those things. That would only build our faith 
and, and strengthen us against the accusations that Satan brings against us and says, God doesn't love you. How could you, do you really think you're a Christian? You just did that? But when we lay our lives out on the table, we say, no, I see the fruit of the Spirit. That doesn't come from me. The patience, kindness, goodness, that is the fruit of a Spirit that is not me. Or fruits of repentance, I will confess my sin and turn from it. That's not natural. Or that I would, I would love the church for them, not for what I get from them. That's not normal. We would love the church in that way. And so we look at those evidences and we say, praise be to God for His salvation. And the, the accuser continuing to say, you, you, are you sure you're in? Are you sure God loves you? Are you sure you're a Christian? We can continue to point to the evidences that God is doing in us and say, look, this wouldn't happen if it weren't for Him. And we praise God for that. Now, I also want to point out some scriptural encouragement to us to lay ourselves out on the table. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So you can't get mad at me. That's in the Bible. I didn't say it. I didn't make it up. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And then lastly, 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So I believe that the warning to us is to continually examine our hearts and lives before the presence of God according to His standards in the Word of God and say, is the Holy Spirit in me? Am I saved? Am I in Him? Is there, is there evidences of the gift of faith given to me? And then asking ourselves, do we have a greater hope in life and death? Do we have a greater hope in death? Are you trusting in your morality? As a greater hope? Are you trusting in your political leanings? Are you trusting in your church attendance or records or giving? Are you trusting in anything in death more so than Christ? But also, do you have a greater hope in life? Do you have greater loves that drown out your affection for Christ. When we put our hearts on the examination table and, and, and begin to really evaluate where we are with Him and, and, and kind of determine, these are what I love Him. I want Him. I want Him above all things. I want Him above everything else in the world. I want Him above all my life. And it's when we put ourselves on the examination table and begin to say, what do we want most? 
what is my thoughts consumed with? Are they consumed with him? What is my giving consumed with? My time? My What am I consumed with? Do I have a greater affection than Jesus in my, in my life? Some of that may be just needing to repent, but some of it may be evidences that you have been a part of the church, but you haven't been a part of Christ. And that's the warning to us, that we would know the difference there. Now, if, if you would say, my desire is to abandon all for the sake of Christ, but you're wrestling with sin, that, welcome to Christianity. We will constantly be wrestling with sin in the flesh the entirety of our lives, but the desire of our hearts is we want Christ above all, and, uh, and, and the, the, the posture of our heart is that we hate our own sin, even though we fail and fall to it at times. We hate it. We want to be rid of it. We want him above all things. The, the person that would be talked about in this passage would be the one that's trying to hold on to Christ and hold on to the world at both times. And saying, I want Christ, but I want to live like the world too. And uh, I, think th- I think this would prove that you don't want Christ. You just want, you, you just want the blessings that Christ can give. You want heaven. You want community. Um... Whatever you want, you want those things that the church can give, but you don't want him above the world. And that would cause us to have say, all right, am I in Christ? Do I, do I know him, right? Now, if you're not, you say, well, David, what can I do? You pray. You go to God and, and, and call out the promises of Romans 10 to him that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, I want, I want to want him. Then go to him and ask him to save you. Ask him to move in your heart and life in that way. And God, who is gracious and merciful, maybe gracious and merciful to save you. Go to him. Now, I don't want to leave us there. I'm actually going to step on the toes of next week's sermon a little bit uh, because I, I, I don't want to leave us in that spot because it's not the entirety context of the passage. But if you were to go on reading in, in Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews at the end of the chapter is going to talk about the surety of salvation for those who are truly saved. And it describes God. It describes God as a God who cannot lie. It describes God as a God who is unchanging. Right? And if these things are true, the writer of Hebrews is putting together, if these things are true, if God cannot lie and He is unchanging, then that means if you are saved, if you are in Christ, then He has not lied and He will hold that forever, that truth that you are in Him forever, and those, that, that Christ is sufficient to save you, but He's also unchanging. He's not going to kick you out if He's already decided that He is saving you. And these are promises that the writer of Hebrews says and Christ because of these things is our anchor we hold fast to him so the the promise that the writer has given to us is that if you are saved if you are saved you're not you're not saved by your own works you're saved by God who's unchanging you're saved by God who cannot lie is is truth and, and and Christ is the anchor of that salvation and he will never be moved Sure, we're fickle, but God is faithful. Yeah, we, we fail and falter, and may, there may be some of us today that you're, you're wrestling with, I'm oh, I am, I am, I'm to figure this out. Great. 
I think the scripture would encourage that too. But if you see that you are in, then take a great hope in the fact that that salvation is not because of you. It was because of him. And since it's because of him, it can never be altered or changed. You can never be removed from his hand. He is your sure and steady anchor. And can weather any storm. Can weather any temptation. Can weather any trial. He cannot be moved. Take a great hope in that church. Bow your heads with me for just a moment. I'm going to pray in just a moment. I do just want to appeal to, if there be anyone in here that is not in Christ, I would love for you to have a conversation with me today. Uh, if you're unsure, let's talk about it. Ask questions. And I'll, I'll, I'll walk with you through those things. Uh, but, but one of the things that the enemy would love to have you do is to uh, taste some of that goodness. And then walk out of here and do nothing. And just drown it out with TV and lunch, work tomorrow. And so deal with spiritual things today. And we want to help you do that. So come find me. Uh, we've actually got a connect booth right outside the, the auditorium now. I'll, I'll go and be there. And we'd love to have you come there. If you just need to be prayed for, come there. I'll be out there. We'll have a team out there. We'd love to pray for Let's pray together. Lord, just so thankful for salvation. Um, that you transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Um, that transaction wasn't because we were awesome. You transferred us. Why? Because you loved us. You set your love on us from the foundations of the world sent your son to redeem us and in your good timing sent the Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts draw us into the gospel draw us into Christ and we praise you for that God we know that's a supernatural work that can't that's not something we, we can manufacture or drum up or figure out the right recipe of songs and prayer times and whatever to to make those things happen, but that's a move of God. And we thank you for, for those that are saved. I pray for those that maybe aren't saved. And the parable of the wheat, wheat and the tares, God, they would find themselves amongst, amongst Christians, but not one of them. And I pray that you would be gracious, you would save. Father, that you would reveal that. For the believer, bring, bring steady affirmation, right and true. For those that are not in Christ, bring conviction and grace and mercy and salvation. Maybe there's someone in here that isn't in Christ and has known that for a long time and has had no desire to be in Christ. I pray, God, that you would just continue to open their eyes to the goodness of the gospel and the, the beauty of salvation and the reality of having to pay the price of our own sin for forever not being hidden in Christ from the wrath come and I pray you would be gracious and merciful and safe God we love you 
And uh, I pray that this word will do what the word does and make us more like Jesus and uh, to grow us in our faith and our understanding of you. Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel City Church Podcast. We hope you found encouragement, inspiration, and biblical truth that will challenge you and help you grow in your relationship with God. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city and to the church and to see disciples who follow him wholeheartedly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. This will help us reach more people with a life-changing message of the gospel. You can also visit our website at gospelcitynow.com to learn more about our church and our ministry. Remember, the gospel is not just a message to be heard, it's to be lived. So let us be sent out this week boldly bringing hope, love, and truth to the city and the church. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to next time.